Well, thank you all for being here. I know there are quite a number of you that have come from some distances. Uh, we sure appreciate you guys and all of the travel and time, especially pre-4th of July weekends. And God seems to have blessed us with two days that are going to be warm and hopefully humidity lessened slightly. We'll see how that all goes. But thank you. And thank you to Christ Covenant Church for hosting us. I appreciate Kevin opening up the uh, church and just making everything available. We've got a lot of sponsors, uh, a lot of different things that are going on. Uh, there's been an army of volunteers coming from various parts, but Christ Covenant especially. So thank you guys very much. Appreciate that. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, if you look at the cover of your program, all of the sessions, the main plenary sessions, are kind of built around this book that we're going to be handing out tomorrow, What is the Mission of the Church? Except for our brother Ian Hamilton, he's going to be doing a biography tomorrow morning. You will not want to miss that. He's going to be doing a biography of John Payton. And so that's the one that's kind of the outlier. But the rest of them are built around kind of the theme of that. So my session this morning uh, kind of is in line with that topic. Who do we send on mission? Specifically kind of looking at the individuals that come from our churches uh, who do we send? And so before we get into that topic, I've got to address, um, we're not talking generally about missions. This missions conference, if you're new to RADIUS, uh, RADIUS is kind of a very specific focused organization. We are not a Swiss army knife. We are a one-bladed knife, but we try and keep that knife very, very sharp. We're focusing on unreached language groups. We don't like the terminology unreached people groups. That has become so wide in its usage that it has almost been watered down to meaninglessness. And so language, though, is very specific. And so my topic and a lot of the speakers are going to be focusing specifically on how do we get to those places, those language groups that have no gospel no disciples, and no church. There are wonderful things that the people of God are doing around the world in terms of social justice and helping with uh, different needs, but we are going to focus specifically for these two days on how do we plant churches among unreached language groups. So just so you, you kind of have that in your background. And um, my session, as I said, is focused on the goers, the people who are going to go uh, be sent from the church, but I hope that those of you in the room, and there, there are quite a few of you that are thinking about, could this be for me? I hope that you're able to see in this session, maybe yourself as well. This isn't just for the churches, but measure yourself by some of the things we're going to talk about, because I'm going to get into the topic, and I, I'm going to pull it primarily from Acts 13, uh, when the church in Antioch sent off Paul and Barnabas, but I'm also going to get into uh, some of the specific details of what these individuals should look like, and I'm going to try and be highly practical in that. So hopefully you'll be able to look at yourself and evaluate, are these the things that are characteristic of my life? So before we get into that, uh, some of you, many of you I know, some of you I don't, and just so you know my background, because some of the stories or things that I'll talk about won't make sense if you don't know my background. As Jason said, uh, my wife and I met in college. Um, we got married soon after. We ended up, through a series of events, uh, getting challenged into missions. We never got a missionary call. We read our Bibles, we believed what it said, and we had the confirmation of our local church, and that propelled us into missions. And we ended up going overseas uh, to an unreached language group called the Yembe Yembe people. 
Uh, we moved in among them in 2004. It took us two years to learn their language to full fluency. And then finally, uh, we got to the point to where we could actually teach. Before we could teach, though, we had to teach them how to read and write. And before we could do that, we had to develop an alphabet for them. Their language had never been written down before, so we developed an orthography. Then we taught them how to read and write in their own language. And then after teaching that, uh, we started uh, producing different booklets, much easier to produce Flies are your enemies than Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So we did that first, and then we got into Scripture, and then finally we had enough Scripture portions, and we started teaching them, starting from Genesis 1-1, working our way through. And in April 27, 2008, we had the first 45 to 50 Yembi Yembi believers who understood the gospel clearly and were Christ followers. And so from that point on, we stayed eight more years to see a church brought into existence with elders and deacons. And in 2016, we came back to the United States, uh, and I started leading Radius in 2017, and we go back to check on the YMBMB church every year. So I was back there in March and was encouraged to meet some of the up-and-coming elders in training that I had very, very little to do with in discipling them, but the existing elders have discipled them so well. So that's kind of uh, my background as we head into this topic. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 13. Let's look at this, the first sending, so to speak, of missionaries. And again, we're talking about who should we send on mission. So Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 1, says this. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so apart from Peter's interaction with Cornelius, this is the first effort to reach the Gentiles. God was choosing to reach out to Gentiles to make them equals with Jews. John Calvin says it this way, God was plainly and openly appointing Paul and Barnabas to be apostles of the Gentiles. By this means, he maketh them equal with the Jews, that the gospel may begin to be as common as well to one as to the other. I love that. The gospel is common to the Gentiles as it is to the Jews. So this effort was the beginning of reaching past culture. You got Jewish culture and you got Gentile culture to reach, reach past culture. And then to also, we've got an instance where reaching past language to get to those Gentiles so that they would have the gospel, they would have disciples, and they would have churches among them. So springing from this passage, I'm going to talk through four points that we should consider when we're wanting to send people to take the gospel to unreached language groups. So if you're taking notes, four points, the first three especially, are going to be pulled from this passage. So point number one from this passage, send those convinced of the centrality of the church. Church leaders send those who are convinced that the church, not universal, the church local, is central. We see from the text that the first sending of missionaries was not an independent action taken by Paul and Barnabas. It was rooted in the local church in Antioch. It started from them, and it would return 
to them. Be careful, pastors, potential missionaries, leaders of churches. Be careful of endeavors in cross-cultural ministry that do not have church planning and that do not emanate from the local church. And local churches, be careful of cross-cultural ministry that does not have some tie to church planting. One of the phrases we use commonly at Radius is the means and the goal of the Great Commission is the local church. And the clearest evidence we have of that is that when the apostles got the Great Commission, you've got four instances of the Great Commission, five if you count the command in Acts 1. You've got these instances, and what did the apostles do? They went out and they planted churches. The Great Commission is the planting of local churches. And let me walk through just a few scriptures so that we can see this. The spread of the gospel right after Jesus' ascension is the spread of local churches. Acts 2, Pentecost results in the church in Jerusalem. Acts eleven nineteen, the establishment of the church in Antioch. Acts 14, 23, elders are attached to churches. Acts 14, 27, the church is the basic Christian community that is gathered for any significant event. Acts 26, 18, Paul recounts his call by Christ. And if you look at it closely, listen to how he says this. He says this to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is how he describes those coming in, their place among the church. Acts 15, 41, Paul in Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. Acts 16, 5, the result of the Jerusalem council, churches are strengthened and grow in numbers. 1 Corinthians 11.18, the assumption is that Christians are coming together regularly, in person. And then Ephesians 1.15-23, Paul prays for Christ to strengthen the church. And this makes sense because the church is not a man-made idea. The church fundamentally is the work of our triune God. 1 Timothy 3.15, it's his family. Acts 20.28, 20, it's bought with his blood. Matthew 16, 18, Christ founded the church. And then my favorite, in the church, the wisdom of God is made known to the world in Ephesians 3.10. The centrality of the church, if you get away from church planting, you're getting away from the Great Commission. The thrust of the Great Commission is to see churches planted. There's a reason why disciples is not sufficient. If you end the Great Commission at Matthew 28, 19, you have ended it. Before the end of the book, you keep going and you see Matthew 28, 20, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Churches planted is the normal means and result of obedience to the Great Commission. Scripture and church history know nothing of missionaries apart from the local church, and also the local church carrying out the Great Commission from church planning. The Great Commission is church planning. When we finished up the translation of the scriptures in Yembe Yembe, uh, the last two books were First and Second Peter, and we finished it all, and we would print books out, and we intentionally didn't want them bound until we had finished all of the comp checks, all the content checks, and making sure that it was as clean and precise as we could possibly get it. Uh, we bound it, and we told the Yembe's, okay, it's, it's coming. We finally had it printed, and we had crates of them coming to the country of Papua New Guinea, and we were going to hand them out. And the Yembe elders, I'll never forget this, because we were going to hand them out. Uh, they were going to pay the equivalent of about 20 cents, which is three days' wages for them. We wanted them to treat it like it was something that was 
uh, of great value. And so that would add that value to them. And the Yembe, I'll never forget this, the elders of the church in Yembe Yembe came to us and said, Brooks, we just, we feel like handing it out would not be the right thing to do. What we would like to do is we want you to send back to the mama churches. The mama churches were the church that sent me, that sent the Suttons, that sent the Chanteers, the two other families that were with us on the team, and send those mama church elders an email and say, could you come over and could you hand us this book for the first time in our history. And that was how we did it. And it was such a sweet thing to see the mama churches for our situation, the church at Antioch, giving the scriptures to the Yembe Yembe church, the centrality of even the written word. This comes from church to the daughter churches that was, that was birthed there in Yembe Yembe. And churches, let me turn this just a little bit are you raising up your own people to go to the nations? One of the aspects that's often overlooked is if the root and the means of the Great Commission is the responsibility of the church, they also have the responsibility to affirm those that aspire to be missionaries and to raise them up within the church itself, talking intentionally to young men and young women. Are you considering this as something to do? I love J.C. Ryle, and man, I hope so much that you guys head to the bookstore over there, and specifically you look at the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle. One of my great regrets is that I did not read that book till my mid-30s. J.C. Ryle, a 19th century Anglican bishop, a supporter of the evangelical school is what it was called back then. He was an evangelical, and he says this, it's easier to raise the money for doing good than it is to raise the men. Ministers are wanted for new churches. Missionaries are wanted for new overseas opportunities. Workers are wanted for neglected districts. Teachers are wanted for new schools. Many a good cause is standing still merely for want of men. It's not about raising dollars. Churches, are we raising up men? Are we raising up those from within our ranks to send? And we're intentional about it from the time they hit grade school. Are we doing that? Too rarely I meet churches that speak intentionally to high school and college students about going, getting their degree in this, raising a godly family, but being trained and discipled in the church, they're rarely challenged past ministry in their own native tongue. Are we raising our sons and daughters that this is something you should aspire to? Do you wean them on some of the stories, some of the great history that is part of the evangelical tradition. Church leaders, are we being intentional in raising up the Pauls and Barnabases in our midst to spur them on to possibly go beyond the borders, to go where no gospel, no disciples, and no church exists? Point number two, send those who are qualified. Send those who are qualified. They're convinced of the centrality of the church, but now we have to look at their qualifications. Are they qualified to do this? Paul and Barnabas were particularly suited for cross-cultural church planning. Paul was an elder at the church in Antioch. He was single, which presented a host of advantages for this type of work. He was also a Roman citizen by birth, a well-educated Jew. He also spoke three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and probably a fourth. He most likely spoke Latin because he was a Roman citizen. Barnabas was an elder in the church as well. He was a natural complement to Paul. He was likely... Uh, his elder, and the one who had vouched for him when he was newly converted. He was a natural encourager and a compliment, and the two personalities put together 
made an evident team. It's not by accident that these were the first two chosen missionaries to be sent out. So here's some practical takeaways. If you're taking notes, these are three sub-points to this point. Practical takeaways for what we should look for in qualified missionaries. Number one, they should be faithful church members. The primary demographic that's most likely, and rightfully so, in many regards, to take the gospel to the last unreached language groups is the post-college 20s to 30-year-olds. But here's the downside. Many times when they're going through college or even graduate studies, they're not rooted well in a local church. And so they're new or largely unknown to the church that they would like to be sent from. Church pastors, take your time. Don't rush this process because of their age or or don't rush this process because of their zeal. Plan for the long term. Radius has four criteria for accepting students. Number one, they have to have a college degree. Number two, they have to be wanting to go to an, they have to be open to going to an unreached language group. Number three, they have to have normal social skills. That's harder than you think it is. Number four, they have to be rooted in a local church enough to where that local church will vouch for them and say, we are behind this individual, this couple to have a local church that speaks well for them. We know them and they know us. That's the number one reason we turn students away. They don't know a local church and the local church doesn't know them, at least not sufficiently. Are they faithful church members? Let me give you three practicals. Are they serving in the local church? Are they directing traffic, working in the parking lot, carrying sound equipment? Do they serve at the Thanksgiving dinner? Or are they only known by the college and career group, by the young married class? Do they know the local church all the way from the toddlers? That doesn't mean they know intimately everybody, depending on the size of it. But are they familiar? Do they work well with all the demographics of the church? Do they share their faith? Do they know how to share their faith? Nothing magical happens on an airplane ride for 12 hours. If they're not sharing their faith here... They're not going to do it overseas. Are they evangelizing their communities? Are they evangelizing their coworkers? Do they speak about Christ clearly and competently here? Are they faithful church members? And are they growing in their understanding of the local church? Are they spending time with the elders, the deacons? Are they reading good books? Are they striving to understand the nuances of ecclesiology before they head into the cauldron of cross-cultural church planting? Number two, sub-point under this, they should be elder qualified. They should be elder qualified. Too often in our day, it's the zealous, the passionate, that's the one that's kind of new and exciting, those who have a calling from God that churches are excited to send. And it's often this passion that results in less scrutiny of their doctrine and fewer questions asked as to their suitability for such a difficult task. This should not be. If there's one group that should face increased scrutiny, it's our cross-cultural church planners. J.C. Ryle, again, says this. This is great. How are missions to the heathen to be carried on unless the managing committees, when he says managing committees, he means church leadership, Unless the managing committees are agreed about the men they are to send out and the doctrines those men are to preach. Can we imagine such a board getting over its difficulty by resolving to ask no questions of its missionaries and to send out anybody and everybody who is an earnest man? 
The very idea is monstrous. If there is any minister who must have distinct views of doctrine, it is the missionary. The statement, and I've heard Carl Truman say this a couple times, the statement that the cutting edge of heresy is usually found in missions is unfortunately true because churches tend to cut corners on missionaries that they would never dream of cutting if they were domestic pastors. Pastors, church leaders, are they qualified to be sent? Now we need to look at this through the lens. Again, we're we're looking at this through the lens of getting to unreached language groups. We have to acknowledge this right at the beginning. The most challenging aspect of sending doctrinally rigorous men and women to the field is that they're going where the hardest groups are. This is a young man's game. This is difficult to get to those places and to learn the languages if they're in their 40s and their 50s. Remember that if you're going to go to unreached language groups, you've got to usually learn two languages. You've got to learn the language of the country, then you've got to learn the language of the actual unreached people group, unreached language group within that country. And younger men are typically less theologically trained and are not as mature as their older counterparts, especially in 2022 where general biblical literacy is on the decline across the board. If we're going to reach those places, if the gospel is going to end up there, and if the church is going to be resident among that unreached language group, though, it's going to be on the backs of young men, young women. If we're going to get to those places, it's going to be a young man's game because young people learn languages. This was known by our predecessors. Courtney Anderson's excellent biography of Adoniram Judson, he was a pioneer missionary to Burma. If you ever get the chance, read the book, To the Golden Shore. There's John Payton that is out there, the autobiography. I trust you will get that after Ian's session tomorrow morning. Again, be here for that. Uh, But Adoniram Judson's, uh, the biography of Adoniram Judson, To the Golden Shore. And Judson was recommending to his mission board that 30 years old was too old to come to Burma. The mental flexibility of youth was already fading or was already gone. He even went so far as to suggest to send teenagers over. This is what he said to his mission board. Send the teenagers over. We'll help finish their high school and their biblical training while they're with us, and they'll also be learning the local language, Burmese, simultaneously. Mission board turned him down, but that was Adoniram's idea. Because the younger they get to the field, the more likely they are to actually get truly fluent. So you've got this two-sided thing. We need them to be biblically qualified, and we need them to be young enough to where they actually can learn a language. When the famous preacher Henry Grattan applied to the famous inland, China Inland Mission, uh, Hudson Taylor reluctantly had to turn him down since he had a wife and three children. And he says this, there was little likelihood of him being able to learn the language sufficiently well as to be useful in China, to be as useful in China as he was at home. Older age, even middle age, does not commonly go together with language fluency. So what do we do? How do we fix this? We look for men that have been rigorous in their theological training through their early years, that the church has a high level of confidence in and have set out as candidates for missions among unreached language groups. Yes, those men are rare. But if they're young, they're gifted, they're doctrinally clear, there's thousands of other options for them, But local church, the cost of sending men who are not qualified is so, so steep. Church leaders, 
Keep the challenge of, of cross-cultural ministry in front of you. Don't cut corners on who you send because they're earnest or excited. Send those who are qualified. And then sub-point number three under this qualification, are they qualified? They should be disciplined and gifted for the task. I intentionally say disciplined and gifted because many of the students who come to Radius are not Rhodes Scholars. They're not summa cum laude graduates of distinguished institutions. But they come from families. They come from churches that instilled in them a discipline level that bodes well for their future. Gifting is one aspect, but discipline should never be overlooked. The problem is that too many men and women with neither gifting or discipline have found their way into missions. Not everyone who wants to be a cross-cultural church planner should be. One of the more troubling things that I've observed since coming back in 2016 is that a lot of, and this is my air quotes friendly way, a lot of interesting people have found their way into missions, especially over the last 50 years. There still persists this idea that we don't think he should be a greeter, we definitely don't think he should be an elder, but let's send him to Indonesia. That's a bad idea. Pastors, elders, church leaders, if they're awkward here, it's going to be worse over there. If they can't hold down a job here, don't send them to Afghanistan. If they play Xbox for seven hours here, they're not a fit for going to the Middle East. They have to be gifted. They have to be disciplined. The rise of the idea that anyone can be a missionary has brought more people into missions, but for the sake of a clear, competent gospel witness, they probably shouldn't have. Think back. Go back in history to the men who were in missions, men like David Brainerd and the thousands in the English-speaking world who he spoke to on a regular basis before giving his life to missions. The dozens, and I'm not, this isn't hyperbole, dozens of senior pastor positions he turned down, even the option of serving alongside Jonathan Edwards. Turned it down. Why? Heading into missions. William Chalmers Burns, who gave his life to ministry in China, before he left for the field, he's handpicked by Robert Murray McShane to be the pastor of the church. And what happens to the church during McShane's one-year absence? Membership goes up. Attendance goes up because the missionary is teaching. Charles Spurgeon, the high esteem he held for the convictions of his dear friend, Hudson Taylor. These were rigorous men. These were not unserious flighty. We don't know how they'll do on the field. No, no, no. They're competent here. They're going to be great over there. They're qualified. We're looking for men like that. Churches, it will cost you much to send these types of people from your ranks. But the downside of sending unqualified men is that we end up planting and doing things that later we regret. And then finally, the subpoint, last subpoint under this, they think in terms of eternity. In my 22 years of being either trained to go into missions, working in missions, or training those who aspire to being missionaries, I found that there's two qualities of young people uh, that they, they're kind of the qualities that you start to see come to the fore as they get ready to head to the field. One, uh, they've started to die to this world. It doesn't have the grip on them that it usually has on the contemporaries. The things, the, the house, the 401k, the, the cars, the jet skis, the, the different, it just, it doesn't have the grip. It's, it's loosening. They just, they don't, they don't 
think in terms of those things. But number two, more importantly, they think in terms of heaven, in terms of eternity. This is so short. That is to come. They don't think in five years, well, what's my commitment? What's my contract? Is it two years? Is it five years? No, no, no. We're looking at things from an eternal perspective. And I'm encouraged uh, by John Payton. Man, I'm just so excited to hear my brother tomorrow as he walks through this guy's life. And this is the roadblocks that he had to overcome. And listen to how he overcame them. This is a famous passage in this biography uh, that is right out there. This famous passage of the things that were put in front of him by people who loved him to hold him back from going to the New Hebrides. And listen to how he reasoned his way into leaving for the New Hebrides. It says this, The church reminded Peyton that the sheep he had labored to bring into the fold would most, most certainly scatter and fall away after his departure. Wasn't it Jesus who had compassion on sheep without a shepherd? This was followed by the promises of money, the church offering to increase his pay to any reasonable salary for which he cared to ask, just so long as he would remain at home. When none of these arguments swayed him, they argued for the needs at home. They reasoned it would be better to evangelize his neighbors and his family members. The most of the locals were not even doing this, and it would make little difference if he headed to the field. And finally, they begged him to stay to the pro- due to the prospects of danger and death. The famous missionary John Williams had been killed and eaten less than two decades earlier. The tragedy was still fresh on everyone's mind. And one dear Christian saint cried, The cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. To which Peyton replied, Mr. Dickinson, you are now advanced in years, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Where did he find the moxie? Where did he find the arguments? He looked to eternity. Let's raise our sons and daughters. Let's raise our church members with that vision. This, this, is, this is temporary. This is temporary. Eternity awaits. Point number three of the overarching outline. Train those you intend to send. Train those you intend to send. Good churches, if we're going to send people on mission, let's train them before we send them. 1 Timothy 4.8 says this, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Churches and church leaders, the primary location that future missionaries are trained in is not at seminary, it's not at radius, but it's at the local church. Again, if the church is the means of the Great Commission, that means that the primary training of doctrine and practice handles or comes out of the local church. And we all intuitively know that those who have been trained in any occupation, whether it's ministry or secular, if they're trained, they do better. There's a brutal statistic that is out there, and there are certain variations to this depending on denomination and depending on 
task, but somewhere between 50 to 70% of all missionaries sent from the English-speaking world do not last longer than two years. This should shock us. This should scare us. Why? Preparation is minimized due to a short-term mindset. Put another way, zeal is not based in knowledge. It's zeal alone, and zeal fades quickly when put to the long-distance test. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, you will always find that men whom God has used signally have been those who have studied most, known their scriptures best, and given time to preparation. The Spirit generally uses a man's best preparation. It's not the Spirit or preparation. It's the preparation plus the anointing that the Holy Spirit alone can supply. Prepared for the task, trained for what they're stepping into. And if they're going to unreached language groups, that training is paramount. There's a reason why the last unreached language groups are the last ones. It's not a random disbursement. They're actually located in difficult countries that are hostile to the gospel. Their languages are some of the hardest to learn. The environment is hostile to the body. And one of the things that breaks my heart is that you have lots of young people heading overseas that love the Lord Jesus. Motives pure as the driven snow, but zeal without adequate training. So let me lay out three areas, three practical areas that the church can train in. Number one, let them see a church in operation. Let them sit in on elder meetings, church membership interviews. Uh, where appropriate, sit in on church discipline. Remember, seminary is of value in a range of skills, but the nuts and bolts of church planning is best learned on-site in the live laboratory that is the local church. Let them see a local church in action. If they're going to go plant a local church, what's the model that they'll have for that planted church? Pastors, let them sit in on message preparation. Let them see how you do house visits. Let them see the model of the local church. Number two, press into difficult areas. Faithful pastors press into difficult areas, especially marriage, singleness, and kids. We're going to try and be really practical here. Pastors, if you don't press into those areas, I guarantee you the agencies and the training schools will not press in near to the level that you hope they will. Look into their marriage. Marriage is one of those areas that local churches should unflinchingly have a good feel for before they head overseas. Men who head into mission, married men, are usually hard chargers. Again, where unreached language groups exist, these are some of the harder areas. They need that hard-charging attitude. But at times, those types of men can be overbearing, can be poor listeners. They have to be self-aware enough to know when to take the temperature of their family. Are we ready for this? Can we handle this as a family before we head overseas? Women in missions need to be convinced that their role is no way diminished by not being a pastor or teacher. And thus, they should aim to be excellent, fluent in local language and culture, just as their husbands. In many Arabic cultures, it's forbidden for men to teach women. Who will teach the women? The wives will. Single ladies will. Are they able to do that? Who will disciple the girls and women of these cultures? You look at marriages, and sometimes marriages, we equate them to off-road vehicles. Some marriages are like a Land Rover. 
Other marriages are like a Toyota Camry. They don't do well once they get off paved roads. Churches, do you evaluate their marriages? Can they handle the rigors of heading overseas? Faithful pastors press into parenting. Do they have children who obey and listen well, who respect the other men and women in the church, or do they survive Sunday because of iPads and treats? But if those things are lacking, significant cracks start to show. Do they have kids who obey, who listen? The Yembies, when we moved into Yembi Yembi, I'll never forget this. My coworker was out in the front yard, and he said to his son, Logan, come here. And Logan turned around and came back, and the Yembies nearly fell over. And they started, they had this uh, phrase. They would call our kids the version of remote control kids. You say things, and they do them. This is amazing, shocking. The testimony that that laid for the gospel, remote control kids. Do we have remote control kids? Or are they independent and free-spirited? That's code for disobedient kids. Singleness in God's good providence, single women have been used mightily in missions. I personally am indebted to Linda Craig, Carol McNinch, Hope Sharp, single women who made me a better translator. Uh, Carol, who kept us supplied and alive in the bush for 13 years. And Hope, who helped us develop our orthography so that the MBMBs could read and write. The list of single female missionaries is incredible. Amy Carmichael, Gladys Allward, Elizabeth Elliott, Betty Green. The shoulders that single women stand on, and I won't embarrass the single ladies that are here that are doing it on the front edges. We had our alumni dinner last night, and the two people who uh, we had stand up who happened to be home on their time on furlough who have mastered Arabic and Hindi, single ladies. Single men as well have much to aspire to. Heroes, the likes of David Brainerd, Henry Martin, William Chalmers Burns. They leave large footprints. and They're great role models. I like to say somewhat comically, and I say somewhat Single men who love Jesus and have normal social skills and would like to head to the field are like unicorns. If you find them, trap them and study them so we can figure out where they come from because we want to know where they emanate. I had one of our radius students send me a picture of him with a unicorn mural the other day. It was excellent. Wise pastors speak clearly and candidly to what it will be like to be a single person overseas. Talk about the sufficiency of Christ. And if their desire to marry becomes too strong, will it be a snare that will end up taking them off the field if it becomes unfulfilled? Speak clearly to single people before they head overseas. This is one of the major reasons that single people come back. Pastors press into difficult areas before you send them overseas. And then number three, subpoint under this, training them well. Train them in disciplines you can't provide. There's a reason why churches send their young men and women to college and seminary. They don't have the time and the skill or the sets of skills to train them in disciplines that they will need for ministry. The same is true for training in translation, literacy, cross-cultural church planning, high-stress marriage, language acquisition, raising normal MKs. These are all classes that we do down at Radius. Teamwork and a host of other skills they're going to need on the field. I have yet to find a church that has the staff and the skills to teach phonetics, phonemics, linguistics, and business in a closed access country. Some skills are not attainable alone in the church. Churches train them in the skills that they will need. Some of that you will probably need to outsource. 
And here's my closing admonition, point number four on the big macro outline. Remember where they are going and protect them. Pastors, remember where they are going. If we're talking about getting to unreached language groups, remember where they're going and protect them. Adoniram Judson, uh, he was offered the position of the assistant pastorship in the largest church in Boston. And his course was already set in Boston. Adoniram Judson's time uh, was kind of the, the epicenter of what was then Orthodox Christianity in the U.S. And his course was set. He was headed to the fields. He wanted to get to Burma. And he's offered this assistant pastorship. And he would likely be the senior pastor very soon. And here's how he recounted that to his family and what happened on that day when his family heard that this offer had been made. Nothing could possibly have made Adoniram's father prouder. His mother, who had been almost unable to contain herself while her husband spoke, broke in and said, and you'll be so near to home. And Abigail, his sister, followed. Dr. Griffin, the senior pastor, Dr. Griffin was sure, she said, that Adoniram was destined to become one of New England's great ministers. This assistantship would be the first step on the ladder. So the three talked and fairly exploded with joy. Adoniram, meanwhile, was overcome with a feeling akin to horror. Every word they spoke was a blow on his heart. Although he had known he must hurt them with his own news, he had never expected to hurt them as he must now. For a few moments, he was unable to speak at all. Then his voice, hoarse and shaking with emotion, he broke into his sister's glowing description of his future with, No, Abigail, I shall never live in Boston. I have much further to go. Pastors, if you raise up young people in your church who understand the centrality of the local church, who love the local church, warts and all, who are qualified, able to teach the scriptures well, to discern good doctrine, and they're well-trained. They're going to be offered hundreds of opportunities. There are no lack for those types of young people back then and even in our day and time. They'll be in high demand from everywhere. But by God's good grace, they are numbered among the precious few who have much further to go. Protect them. Protect them from those good, not bad, good opportunities, good potential things. If we're ever going to reach those unreached language groups and see not just disciples, but to see churches planted among them, it's going to be those Amy Carmichaels, those John Paytons, those David Brainerds that are raised up from within our own ranks that still will go so much further. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the ones you have raised up that are examples to us that hold forth hope for what it will look like to leave home and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers to turn their back on things that are so very dear. Father, thank you that you did not spare from us your very best. 
that you sent your son who left the best home, the best living situation to come and live like one of us, to become like us in every way yet without sin. Thank you for not withholding from us that precious gift. Father, as we send those from our churches, as we send those from our families, the very best that we have, may we raise up young men and young women who are faithful, who will stand the test of time for your namesake and for your church. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.